So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and uh, we're going to talk about this. Um, uh, we're going to do a little walk through the Gospel of Matthew uh, and want to spend a little bit of time, just a really short amount of time, talking about the Gospel in itself and the, as a whole essence. And then we're going to talk about the first 17 verses today. Um, the first 17 verses are a list of names, uh, more than 40 names. And if you're a preacher, it's, it's like um, death, all right? Um, so uh, we're going to get through this, and, uh, but there's some things that I think that aren't that big of a reach that uh, we can see that uh, you might not see in the first glance. If you just read this, you would probably just skip it and get to the good part with the baby and all that, with the whole Jesus thing. But um, there are four uh, Gospels in the Bible, all right? There's lots of Gospels out there, but the four in the Scripture are, are deemed by the early church to be written uh, by first-hand accounts. Uh, the Gospel of Mark uh, was written, um, Peter told Mark about his experience with Jesus, and Mark wrote it down. And then Matthew and Luke are the other synoptic Gospels. Mark, Matthew, Luke are all synoptic, and then John kind of stands by itself. And they are, uh, the synoptic is, they're all similar, and John is really different and in includes a lot of different material. Uh, but Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source uh, to write theirs. And so when Matthew was writing, he used this, um, Mark already existed. And so he expands on a lot of things that are in Mark. Uh, and he uh, writes about some of the same things that Mark writes about. And you can see some similarities in those Gospels. But uh, the Gospel of Matthew is written probably by a guy named Matthew. Uh, it doesn't say in the text, like it doesn't say this is the book of Matthew written by Matthew, but uh, the earliest church was establishing that this was written by Matthew and it's just kind of been this long extended thing. There's modern scholars who say it wasn't Matthew and stuff and I think they, they have fun doing that, but it doesn't matter. Um, but he, uh, he wrote it probably in the late 50s, early 60s, maybe as late as the 80s. And that actually matters a bit. It'll matter later on when we get to chapter 25, um, because they pro prophesy some destructive things to the temple and the end of the world type of things. And that actually happened in the 70s. Like, I don't mean like the 70s, I mean like the original 70s. Um, and so this, uh, if it happened and it mattered... Uh, whether it happened in 50, like the late 50s, early 60s, because then it gives Jesus some, um, the ability to prophesy and the ability to predict the future. And if they wrote it down in the 80s, they could have attributed things to Jesus that he didn't actually say or didn't actually do that would make him seem better than he was. Um, and, and I don't believe that Jesus needed that. Um, so uh, Matthew wrote this. And when he writes it, um, you need to know that the Gospels aren't written like in a vacuum. It's not like a, a science textbook or something like that. Like when Matthew was writing, he had an idea in his mind of who he was writing to and why he was writing it and, and what he wanted to accomplish in writing this thing. He hadn't, a, a, like, it's fair to say he had an agenda. Like, he wanted to get something across. Like, he wasn't just talking about Jesus in a science textbook way. He was talking about Jesus in a particular way and he had, he knew what he wanted to say and he knew how he was going to say it. And so, to that end, Matthew becomes, and, and everybody who studies Matthew recognizes this, that it's a, like a model of, of discipleship. And discipleship is kind of a weird Christian word or in, only like Christians and ninjas use the word disciple, right? And so, um, but Christ, in Christianity, discipleship means that it's like you follow the teachings of someone, but you also follow what they did. And you don't just do what they say to do, but you do what they did. And so, uh, being a, a discipleship for us means we learn the teachings of Jesus, but we also learn how Jesus lived. And then we don't just follow the teachings of Jesus, we live how Jesus lived. Uh, and doesn't 
doesn't mean we go and walk on water, right? But we see the character of why Jesus did what he did and how he did what he did and the reasons behind the things he did. And then we uh, imitate those exact things and we do the same things that Jesus did. Not, we don't go perform miracles the same way Jesus did, but we treat people the same way Jesus did and we interact with people the same way that Jesus did and we see the world the same way Jesus did. And so Matthew wrote this uh, as a, this discipleship guide and it's a biography of Jesus, which we're disciples of Jesus and not disciples of Matthew. Uh, but so you know, it's not um, like when they wrote biographies in the year 5560, you could organize it thematically if you wanted to. You didn't need to organize. Like if a biography comes out today, it's organized very chronological. It starts at the beginning and it goes to the end, right? That's how we understand things. But in their culture, they could organize it by themes. Like here's all the happy parts of my life. Here's all the sad parts of my life. And here's all the adventure parts of my life. And here's a story about all my birthdays. You know, like you could organize it that way and it would be acceptable for, for their mindset and for their early literature. And so Matthew writes this and he writes it in the culture around him and when you read it you can see that he's writing to a Jewish audience uh, like the, the Gospel of Matthew is written to Jewish people uh, in the 50s and 60s uh, and written to them who live in a very uh, irreligious context or a pantheistic context around them where there's um, so many gods that there are basically no gods or there's so many gods that there's no one Yahweh God uh, and so it's, it's written to religious people living in an irreligious world which I think um, parallels our situation a lot. I think Christians in our western culture because we're so comfortable with Christianity or so comfortable with the church that the biggest temptation for the church today I think is religion. That we get into that rut and we just kind of ride this rut of doing these rituals that are meaningless and, and you end up in heaven. Right? And, and you can see some of us have church backgrounds that really expose this kind of thing where you just kind of go you do the thing, you do the thing, you do the other thing. It means nothing and then you go home, right? And, and there's no um, relationship. And, and what we believe Christianity is, is discipleship, which is following Jesus, not following a bunch of rituals that people have made up. Things like, like the Advent candle, uh, people made that up. Like Jesus didn't say light candles four weeks before Christmas, right? So we don't worship Advent candles. If, if next year we didn't do Advent candles, we'd all be just fine. You know, we'd, we see rituals as a way to help us focus on Jesus, not as us. We don't serve the rituals themselves. And so Matthew writes this to religious people in an unreligious world. And, and this is the context that we have to live in. The struggle that we have is falling into religion, but we're living in a world that's very irreligious. Uh, it's, it's fantastically irreligious. I, can, I went and picked up my son from a sleepover in between services. And there are all sorts of people not in church this morning. You know, they all went last night. Um, so there's, <laughs> right? Uh, there are people, uh, I've told you this before, we'll drive to church and we'll be jogging and my son will say, those people are jogging to church, you know? And they just, uh, but we know they're, they're it's, uh, if you follow Jesus, you're quickly becoming a minority in our culture. And we don't claim that's a good thing or a bad thing. We say that this is the reality that we live in. And, and regardless of whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, this is where we live. And the challenge for us today is how do we follow Jesus in a world that doesn't follow Jesus? And in a world that doesn't even know that Jesus has anything to do with what's going on. A world that can celebrate Christmas and celebrate Easter and never know about a baby that was born 
uh, in a manger and, and uh, ended up dying on a cross uh, and never have any concept that there's a God who actually loves them, uh, who loves them to the point of death uh, and, and wants to have a relationship with them. And so, and so this Matthew's written. Now, uh, we'll... Matthew has, like I said, this agenda. And Matthew's primary agenda, uh, and you need to catch this, his primary agenda is a political agenda, uh, which if you're a political person, you're going to love this, all right? Because Matthew is presenting Jesus as king, all right? And not just like a junior king or another king or an alternate king. Matthew's presenting Jesus as king. And so this is very much the King Jesus gospel. And people refer to Matthew like that all the time. And when Matthew talks about Jesus, He's talking about the king. And Jesus was the challenge to Herod, who was the kind of puppet king over Israel, and the challenge to Caesar, who ruled the Roman Empire, who was ruler over the entire Roman Empire. Uh, and, and like over the whole, basically the known world at the time. And so when uh, the Caesar was in charge, they combined politics and religion together so that the Caesar wasn't just like your president, he was also your God. And it, it was really convenient because then you paid taxes and it was just like paying your offering, right? And you just all in one. It was like a package deal. Uh, and, but at the same time, if your leader is seen as deity, then they can't make mistakes, right? And so if you're going to be a leader, the best thing to do is to set yourself up as deity because then whatever you do isn't a mistake. It's what God wants because I'm God, right? If you ask Caesar, do you believe in God? He's like, I look at him in the mirror every day, you know? And uh, this would be, and, and this is how they lived. And so when you would have someone born like Jesus and you would start saying things like Jesus is the king or Jesus is Lord, these weren't just like statements in a worship song. These were statements of a revolution. Statements of, I don't respect the king on the throne in Rome. I respect this king right here. Uh, when they would say, uh, Jesus is Lord, it was a direct front because one of the things that you would say when you saw Caesar is you would say, Caesar is Lord. Uh, just like we say, um, God bless America, right? We say that. They would say, Caesar is Lord. And that would be like a common patriotic saying. And so when you come over here and say, Jesus is Lord, you're not just bringing out a new God. You're being unpatriotic to what everybody believes in your society. And when Matthew is setting up Jesus as king, he's got this undercutting revolutionary agenda that's going on to the point where when we go through this book and you start to think about the word king, you'll think of Jesus. And you'll start to see the way that the church, though we live in a particular country on earth, like every, every Christian in the world lives in a particular country on earth, we don't believe that the ruler of our country is actually in charge. The person in charge of us is King Jesus. And King Jesus is King Jesus is the one that gets our, uh, our ultimate allegiance. While we are thankful for freedom and we're thankful for our country without a doubt, this isn't like a, oh, don't pay your taxes anymore statement, all right? You should pay your taxes. Jesus said so. Um, but there is this kind of ultimate authority that we recognize that if the authority that's put in our life disagrees with the authority of Jesus, we go with Jesus instead of the authority that's on this earth. So, um, let's read through this, all right? This is the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. It'll be on the screen, and we're going to read every single word. You're going to feel like you're dying, and then imagine what it'd be like to read it in front of people. Um, 
verse 1 says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, okay? So that word genealogy is the same word as uh, the word Genesis, okay? So this really says, in the beginning, or the Genesis of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And so when, if you were a Jewish person who had memorized the Torah, who had memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, um, like, and as every Jewish person did, you would hear this, And if you heard the words, in the beginning, you would think of this right away. You would think about the beginning of the scripture. And so this, uh, Matthew is bringing to mind something very, very old, though he's saying there's something new happening here. And so this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. And he's the son of David, uh, the son of Abraham. And the son of David is important because David is the king. And David's line is the kingly line. And so he's establishing right off the bat, Jesus has a rightful heir. He is a rightful heir of the throne. If David was the king, then Jesus is David's son, and Jesus belongs on the throne just like David belonged on the throne, and he's also the son of Abraham. And you know from the popular song, Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. And so when we talk about him being the son of Abraham, we talk about him being a true Israelite, a true Jewish uh, person. And so Jesus, this is the genealogy or the genesis of Jesus, who is a rightful heir to the throne, who is a part of the Israelite nation, and that is uh, an important part of who he is, uh, not just... um, not just like uh, this extra thing that's added on. This is who Jesus is. Now, the genealogy here, the Gospel of Luke has a genealogy as well, but it works backwards. And Luke is written to more of a Greco-Roman audience, and Greco-Roman genealogies would start like this. I'm James, and my father was James, and his father was Robert, and like, and his father was whoever, and they would move on like that. Whereas a Hebrew genealogy would say, well, we came from... Uh, Abraham and Abraham had this guy and this guy and this guy and it would end with me and we would eventually get to me. A Greco-Roman world started with me and went to my ancestors and a Hebrew world started or Hebrew worldview started with ancestors and worked to me. So when you read the Gospel of Luke, this genealogy is backwards because he's writing to a different audience. And when you read Matthew, the genealogy starts at the beginning and where you start matters and then you move forward. So let's read it. You might recognize a couple names. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. In case you didn't get that already, we need to understand that David is the king. And that's the first block from Abraham to David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Let me read that again so you see the scandal. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah. Abijah the father of Asaph. Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon, or the exile, some Bibles say the exile to Babylon. So the second block goes from David to the exile to Babylon. 
And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor. Now if you're expecting, pay attention right here. And Azor the father of Zadok. Awesome. And Zadok, the father of Achim. That's still available in this church. No one has named their kid that, so you could have the only one. Um, Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Methan. Methan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And so the third block goes from the exile down to Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, if you're like a... um, uh, like a horoscope kind of person, those 14 generations, you're like, woo, spooky, right? Um, but it actually, uh, the 14 generations, it wasn't actually 14 generations, literally. These, they pulled out 14 generations to put into this uh, genealogy. So they're generations who were skipped and people who were left out, all right? And the generations, like the, the blanks took up different times. Like some of them were six or 700 years and some of them were only 400 years that we did 14 generations, 450 years that we would do 14 generations and the 14 generations were put together in an oral transmission culture uh, this is how people talked about things and how you remember things and in their culture the important numbers were 3 7 10 and 40 all right and so 3 7 10 40 the, all those numbers meant completion or fullness so if you had three things like Jesus was in uh, under, he was died and rose on the third day of his death uh, that's a completion okay that's how we see this Noah and the ark reigned for 40 days 40 nights completion all right um, so when we talk about 14 generations 14 generations 14 generations it's a numeric symbol that they would use in their story to remember it and to symbolize that these things were complete all right so not only the seven they had double seven so it was double complete double complete double complete and they would have seven 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 so the seventh seventh began with Jesus and Jesus began the genealogy or the section of his genealogy that is completion and when we talk about being adopted into God's family this talks about the completion uh, of what he would do. The name David too they would always attribute numeric symbols to the letters that they had but they didn't have vowels and so David's name would be spelled D-V-D or sometimes it's translated as D-W-D depending on how you read your Hebrew and it would be 464 which adds up to 14 and if this is a genealogy where David is the most important person they would think, David, they would think immediately, number 14. And if you talked about the number 14, school children in Jesus' day and age would say, number 14, that's David's number. All right? Uh, and so having these 14 generations for school kids who are memorizing the generations that led up to this, uh, this these were like uh, devices for memorization, devices for showing what was happening and showing what this was about. These 14 generations are about uh, Jesus's kingly, legal right to the throne. Alright, so when we talk about someone wanting to be king, the first thing that you can undercut for someone being the king, or we don't have kings in this country, but countries that do, you have to be from the royal line. You have to show who your dad was, who your dad's dad was, and your dad's dad dad, and all the way back as far as you can. And so the main objection to Jesus' rightful claim to the throne is going to be, where are you from? 
And by doing this, he establishes that he's from the line of David and he's from the line of Abraham. This is where Jesus is from. And so Jesus has the right to be on the throne. He is an heir to the throne of the Israelite people. So, in there, a couple of things that uh, we notice as we're reading through there. Um, There are good guys in there, and there are bad guys in there. There's good guys left out, and there's bad guys left out. Uh, Some of it you recognize if you were here when we went through the book of Ruth. Uh, It copies some of that straight from Ruth, but there's extra names thrown in. Um, But we we recognize Boaz and Jesse, and uh, Boaz and Obed and Jesse and David uh, from the book of Ruth, which is in the Old Testament, and which shows that Matthew didn't just write this up in the air. He would have reference books. He would have the book of Ruth at his local synagogue. He could go and write this down and copy it like a like a library. It wasn't just something he was pulling out of this out of space. Uh, and so there's these, uh, there's good guys, there's bad guys, there's good dads who have bad sons, good dads who have good sons, bad dads who have good sons, and bad dads who have bad sons. Uh, and Jesus doesn't put those things away. If you were writing a genealogy about yourself, about how awesome you were, right, uh, then you wouldn't probably include some of the people in your life, all right? Uh, we all have that uncle or aunt, if we're handing in a family tree at school, we don't have enough paper to get them on. Sorry. All right? We all kind of have those branches of the tree that, oh, that branch fell off in a storm. All right? And, and we just don't want to talk about it. And we just kind of put that away and, and, and we don't acknowledge that it exists. Well, apparently when you're talking about the genealogy of Jesus, even these messed up people are included. Even people that aren't good enough uh, or that aren't worthy of being in the genealogy of the Savior of the world are included in this. And then there's the four women in there. Uh, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, uh, and Bathsheba. Bathsheba's not named. She's called the wife of Uriah. All right? Um, So Tamar, uh, all four of these, so you know, are Gentile women. None of them are pure Israelite women. All right? And which means Jesus uh, came from a background that wasn't pure Israelite, which for them, for an Israelite person, marrying a non-Israelite was a sin issue. All right? It wasn't like, oh, she was pretty issue. It was a sin issue. Uh, And so uh, Tamar carried on the family line uh, by having sex with her father-in-law. All right, and getting pregnant that way. Um, nasty. Uh, Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. Um, you can kind of surmise she was good at it too. Uh, she ran a brothel where you could hide people on the roof, all right, and, uh, and, and lived. And, and anyway, so she's like a prostitute that everybody had heard of, that kind of prostitute. Um, she gives birth to Ruth, and Ruth is a Moabitess, right? Uh, and all of these women kind of have shady sexual innuendos in their life. Well, or that's, being a prostitute is not an innuendo, right? Uh, so they have a dubious sexual history is a better way to say that. R- Ruth, we're kind of like, uh, but there's that thing that where Ruth goes to the threshing floor and uncovers Boaz's feet and you're like, well, what was that about, right? And you're like, uh, she was just uncovering the feet, okay? Um, but we could get to heaven and Ruth would be like, Yep, that's what I was doing, you know, and and that'll be awkward because you're like, I don't even know you, Ruth. So, um, but, 
there's that whole there's kind of scholars kind of deal with that in weird ways um, and, and so there's her and then there's Bathsheba the wife of Uriah if you're not familiar with the story let me tell you real quick Uriah um, was a soldier who was out in fighting a war and King David was the leader of, of that of that troop of those soldiers and, and the king is supposed to be out there leading the troops but this King David decided you know, I'm kind of important. I'm not going to go out there. I'm going to delegate that and not be a leader. And so Bathsheba is bathing on her roof, which I don't know if that's culturally normal or if that's like, I want some attention, so I'm going to have a shower on my roof, right? Uh, you've got some issues if you're on your roof naked. But uh, that's what she's doing. David sees her. David's the king. So he says, I would like to have sex with that woman. Go get her. Bring her in here. He has sex with her. And uh, uh, she becomes pregnant. And so David's like, okay, this is bad news. I'm the king. This is a scandal. This could totally screw up my presidential nomination. And, uh, but, um, but there is, uh, but so he makes a plan. He's like, I'm going to bring Uriah home from the front lines uh, so that he will sleep with her. He's missed his wife. You know, he's going to come home. This will be good. This will be my cover. You know, the baby will come out looking like me, but nobody will notice. And uh, so Uriah comes home and he's such a good troop uh, that he refuses to sleep in his house. He loves his wife. He says hello to his wife. But he's like, all my men are out there sleeping in a trench, having like spears and arrows chucked at them. I'm not coming home to relax like that. That's not, that's not what a military leader does. And he sleeps outside where everybody can see. Uh, this isn't going to work for David. So David talks to the guys in charge of Uriah's uh, company, of Uriah's platoon. And he says, you're going to advance, and then you're going to signal a signal that everybody but Uriah knows, and then you're going to do a hasty retreat. And so they all advance, and there's Uriah, and they all hasty retreat, and Uriah goes, what's going on? What are you doing? And all the bad guys surround Uriah and kill him. And so David... Uh, who had Solomon with the wife of Uriah, not only committed adultery, but then he covered up his tracks, or that's the wrong word, covered up his sin by killing off the guy who would be, uh, who, wh whose wife he took. Uh, and not just, like, wasn't man enough to go and kill him himself, but he set up his murder so it looked like, oh, that's terrible, and now I'm the good guy because I'm consoling this lonely widow, and if you lose your husband in war, you'll be brought into the king's house and have babies for the king. Look at how great I am. The weird thing is, David is the greatest king in Israel's history. Greatest king. If you think about it, the standard's set kind of low. Like, if you're following up from him, you're like, well, I did adultery, but I didn't kill anyone, so I'm one step up on David, right? Like, it's, it, there's, it's not like David was so awesome. And when you read, in the middle of the Bible, there's this book of Psalms, and they were the, the, like the worship songs of, of the Jewish people, and, and the early church would have used those same worship songs as they began worshiping Jesus. And a large amount of them were written by an adulterous murderer who, who God said, I am good friends with this guy. Uh, we have, there's a, a praise band here in the United States that got really famous. We sing their songs. Uh, and they collapsed a, a year, two years ago because it came out that the lead singer was having an affair with the bass player's wife. It was a, he was an adulterous guy. And, and we sit down as the worship team and me and stuff and we're like, uh, just casually, we don't hold big meetings about this, but we're like, can we still sing this guy's songs? 
Like these songs brought meaning to our church. Can we still sing these? You know, and and we we can, we do. They're written for God because adulterous people write songs that are in the Bible, apparently, and and God can use people that apparently uh, aren't worthy of being used. You know, and and King David would have actually like killed the bass player after this. You know, and, and set it up so it looked like an accident. You know, like I accidentally dropped your amp in the bathtub and right, but. Um, whoops uh, but there's this King David was much worse and, and so when we look at this though if you had this in your history would you put it in your family tree and would you hand it in right would you be like here's why everyone should think I'm awesome the people in my family are all awesome uh, and maybe you come from a really good family your immediate family is fantastic your grandma and grandpa but I think all of us can stretch out far enough to get that that uncle or that aunt or that grandma or grandpa, you know, that grandpa who, you know, hired someone to kill his grandma, but the hitman got drunk and passed out and the cops came and arrested him. And so you were visiting grandpa in the Kingston Penitentiary on family day, you know, like uh, these kind of things we don't share with everyone. Uh, True story. (laughs) But... You don't, if you're hiring a hitman, it's not a place you want to save money, all right? My, my grandpa was too cheap to get the job done, but uh, I don't make these jokes with him, so you know, I don't make these jokes with anyone in my family. So, but, uh, but there is this kind of, we have these awkward things in our life, and we're like, why is that in my story? Like, what, who am I if this is where I come from? Uh, if these are my people, then what does that make me? And what we see in this genealogy is that apparently God's grace and God's forgiveness isn't dependent on whether you're worthy of it. Like God will use you even if you're not worth being used. Like God is doing what God's going to do. And he's inviting you to be a part of that story, whether you've earned it or not. Like some of us in this room, uh, you feel like you've paid your dues. You know, you've been going to church for a long time. You learned all the Sunday school lessons. You know, you, uh, you, whatever. You go to church every single week, or I don't know how. You have this point system, and you think I've earned to be used by God. And some of us, we look at this and we're like, I am the furthest thing from something God could use. Like I'm in a situation in my life, and and the people around me, even the people sitting around you right now. They don't know the secrets that I have inside. And God knows them. And we know that God knows our secrets. And we know that God knows the thoughts in our hearts. And he still decided, and he still decides to use you and invite you in. No, to use us, me and you, and invite us into his story. And invite us to be a part of the greatest thing Uh, that has ever happened in the history of humankind, the story of Jesus, and sharing that story and bringing it to the world. Uh, So, we're establishing Jesus' rightful uh, place on the throne. Jesus is the king. And towards the end, this is verse uh, 16, we get down to Jesus. It says this, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, 
who is the Christ. And there's a couple things here that you don't, it's, it's hard to recognize in English, but it wasn't originally written in English. And when you read it in the original languages, you notice some things. Before this, like 40 times it says, this guy gave birth to, like, Eliud was the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Methan, Methan, the father of Jacob, blah, 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 blah. 40 times it talks about fathering someone, and it uses a verb that's an active verb, all right? Like they had, they were doing the action. If this was, um, like, uh, kicking, this would be like, kicking is a verb, like we were doing the kicking. James kicked, you know, Steve kicked. Tony kicked, we all kicked, all right? Then it comes down to this, like Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And that verb is a passive verb. And if we were talking about like the word kicked, it would be like Mary got kicked, all right? Or James got kicked. It wasn't Mary who was doing the action. And so it wasn't that Mary had the baby, it's that the baby happened to Mary, uh, and we can't see that here as much because it says of whom Jesus was born. But in the original languages it was saying it was a passive thing that Jesus, like Mary wasn't doing this. This was happening to Mary. And, it, and it's a reference to the virgin birth that was going on. And then secondly, where it says the of whom, uh, that in the original languages they would have gender connected to those things. And that was a female gender statement happening. And the of whom is referring to Mary only and not Joseph. This is why Joseph is called the husband of Mary. Jacob was the father of Joseph who was the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born who is called the Christ. Jesus is not Joseph's son. Jesus came to Mary and Mary only. It's an exclusive thing that happened to Mary and it happened to Mary alone. Joseph was the adoptive father of Jesus. Which, as far as royal line goes, is totally acceptable. Culturally, at this time, the Caesars would do this. They would adopt people so that they could become the next king. Uh, if their sons were duds or they couldn't have sons, they would adopt someone. And then, because of that adoption, uh, we see this in Jesus' own line, adoptions happening. But if you are adopted, I know some of us are, or if you have adopted people... You feel there are some emotions and some feelings that you have as an adopted person that uh, many people don't have. And Jesus shared in those same feelings. It's such an interesting thing because you can feel like, like the vast majority of people aren't adopted. And so you kind of feel like I'm, I'm out there because I'm adopted. And who's out there with you? Jesus. If your parents are adoptive parents, then you feel some things that Jesus felt. If, if Jesus is the Son of God born through Mary and Joseph is his adoptive father, uh, Joseph married a single mom and saved not only Jesus' life and brought Jesus into the world and, and, and gave him a, a life, but he gave Mary a life. Like Mary, to be, in their culture, to be a woman who was suddenly pregnant and then say, it was a virgin birth. That's not going to fly. We'll talk about this more next week, but... I mean, you can imagine if this happens in your family. You go back for the family reunion and cousin Sally is pregnant and she's like, virgin birth. <laughs> Nobody believes you, right? Like, you don't. And, and people wouldn't be expected to believe Mary either, but Joseph did. And so Joseph becomes the adoptive father to the single mom and, and her son through this virgin birth and through this amazing thing where uh, Jesus is adopted on earth into the kingly line so that when Jesus was born it didn't just depend on Mary saying yes 
and on Mary having a successful delivery when she had her baby, but also depended on Joseph adopting Mary and Jesus into his own life. It's kind of an interesting thing when you think, you think God would kind of stack the deck. You think God would set things up so that it all worked out. And instead God's using like random Gentile woman. He's using bad guys in their history, embarrassing family branches of the family tree. And then he's using the hope that a man will have uh, a mercy on a single mom and her son and adopt her in. And this is how Jesus is born. This is how the king comes to live on earth. This is how the Messiah, who's come to save us from our sins, shows up. Um, God is incredibly, incredibly faithful in what he wants to do. Like, God has set out to do something. And that something is to have relationship with you, with all human beings, with us as a community of humans, but also with, like you as an individual. And no matter how much we seem to screw that up, he's persistent and faithful to continue pursuing you. Like you might, uh, maybe you followed Jesus a long time ago, and by this time you're like, wow, I, and you went, you know, I don't like Jesus. I think God's a joke. I'm becoming an um, atheist or agnostic or something uh, strange. And uh, uh, God is still pursuing you. Like no matter what you do, you can't get God to stop loving you. And the difference, I think, in people, when we look at the religious people, religious people assume that God loves them because they're worth being loved. And, and the, re, the way that you get to the point where you think you're worth being loved is you develop a point system where you have more good than bad in your point system, right? And you might not consciously do this. You don't have a little book at home where you have a point system, but you think about yourself and you think, I'm pretty good. Uh, maybe your point system involves comparing you to your people around you, and you're like, I'm better than this person, this person, this person. I'm no, I'm no Billy Graham, no Mother Teresa, but I'm better than these people. And so, as far as points go, I'm probably in good standing. I'm above the yellow line. I'm not going to get voted out, right? Uh, I don't understand that, but um, there's... I wish everybody got voted in. But um, uh, So there's this kind of lie that religious people are able to tell that we're able to tell ourselves and that's what makes us religious people and then there's a whole different kind of person who follows Jesus and understands that Jesus loves me even though he knows me Jesus loves me even though he knows me this happens in relationships uh, especially marriages when people get married, and I've done married and marriages, and there'll be like these two well-dressed people up here, and I'm like, you have no idea who you're marrying. Like really, if you've been married for more than five, six, seven years, you'll realize there were things you didn't know, right? Like they looked really fancy and well-behaved that day. <laughs> and then you're like, that smells terrible, right? And, <laughs> and, and you get into, when, you, when you're married for a longer period of time, you start to find out who that person is. Like things about that person that nobody else knows. And in a good marriage, you love them more. Like you start to see that there's cracks in them and that there's deficiencies in this person and I love them more because of that. And when God looks at us, he says, I couldn't love you more because I love you as much as love can possibly love anyone. And I know who you are 
And I know the terrible things that you don't tell anyone, even your spouse, even if you've been married for long periods of time. I know things about you that nobody knows. Your closest friends don't know. I know your motivations. I know the things that, uh, that you struggle with. And yet I love you. And not just love you in a, oh, I love you way, but I love you to the point that I'm going to use you to accomplish my purposes in this world. I want to, God says, I want to partner with people. Not, I want to partner with good people, or people who've earned it, or people who are worthy of it, or people who have got enough points in their point book. God says, I want to partner with people. And the people that he's able to partner with are the people who are honest with themselves. The people are honest with themselves and then, because of that, they're able to be honest with God. Jesus talks about this all the time, that there's prayers that people say where they're like, God, thank you for making me so awesome. Thank you for not making me like those people over there. And then there's prayers that the people over there say where they say, God, I don't know what you were thinking when you made me. I don't know why you made me like this. I don't know why I struggle with these things. And I don't know why you would still use somebody like me. And because of that, it gives me even more reason to praise you and worship you. Like when we sing together to God, it's not because we're good at singing. It's because this God was crazy enough to love us. And crazy enough to choose us. And we know who we are. And because of that, we can't help but love him back. Like we look at ourselves and we can't help but think, anybody that would love me, I will love them back. And anybody that would love me to the point of dying for me like Jesus did, I'll love them to the, to the end of the world. I'll give my whole life to that person. I'll serve them. And that response in love comes because God loved you not when you got good enough or not when you got your act together. God loves you right now with what you're in, with what you're dealing with, with all of your junk. God doesn't just love you and hate your junk. God loves you and all your junk. He doesn't just like, here, I'm going to love this part of you and I'm going to hate that part of you. He wraps his arm around all the ugliness that you are and says, I'm making you beautiful because of who I am. Sometimes people will say things where they say, like, uh, I have to really behave, or I have to really, I have to be careful around my family because I'm, I'm protecting God's reputation. And it's this false kind of um, uh, pressure that you put on yourself because God's reputation doesn't actually need your help. And, and quite possibly, the worse you are, the better God's reputation because God still loves you even though you suck as far as representing him goes. All right? We put this thing on us when we're like, I have these friends at work or I have these friends at school and I need to make sure I don't cuss in front of them. I need to make sure I don't gossip in front of them because I, I want them to think that Christians are good people. And when you look at Jesus' story, some of them are and then some of them really aren't. And really, it's, some of them are good at hiding it and some of them really aren't. Some of their stories are written down for all of us to see. It's not really fair that David's story is just out there. Right? Like if you're the king of Israel and you see a woman bathing naked, you can't tell me you make a different decision. You're just not the story that's written down for everybody to read. And when you get to heaven, there's David and you're like, oh, I know about you. Stay away from my wife. Right? 
there's no marriage in heaven, so you don't have to worry about it. But, um, but there's this kind of. It's true. You don't worry about that. Okay, so. <laughs> so there's this. There's this concept that I need to protect God's reputation, and God's reputation doesn't need to be protected from you. It's being built in you, so that when you fall short. It's not showing how weak God is. It's showing how great God is. This is what the Bible means when it says his strength is made perfect in your weakness. That whoever you are shows who God is. Not however good you are shows how good God is. It's whoever you are, God still loves you. And that shows how great God is. The word gospel, like the gospel of Matthew, means good news. You want to know what the good news is? God loves you. And not God loves you when you're good enough, or not you can someday earn God's love, but God loves you. The good news of Matthew is that God loves you. The king of the world has chosen to love you. The king, who is the rightful legal king on this planet, has decided that you're the one he wants to be friends with. You. Me. Us. I don't know if there's better news than that. Let's pray.